Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Coming up, China, Japan and South Korea have charted a course for Trilateral Leaders Summit. What significance does it hold for regional peace and development? China unveils 25 measures to bolster the private economy. How effective will they be in addressing the current challenges faced by private enterprises? China trials visa-free travel for six countries. How will it contribute to China's high-quality development and opening up? A trilateral foreign ministers' meeting between China, Japan and South Korea has concluded in the Korean city of Busan. China's Wang Yi called on the three countries to play a more proactive role in promoting regional and global development. He stressed that the three countries should focus on mutual benefit and win-win results, restart negotiations on their trilateral free trade agreement, and contribute to the common goal of pushing for a free trade area for the Asia-Pacific. South Korea's Park Jang and Japan's Yoko Kamikawa spoke highly of the progress made in the trilateral cooperation and expressed their willingness for more substantive cooperation in various fields. The three sides agreed to create conditions for China-Japan-South Korea leaders' meeting. Jack Barton has more. A weekend in Busan marked by two days of bilateral meetings between the foreign ministers of China, South Korea and Japan all culminating in a meeting of all three neighbouring nations with a consensus to restore and normalise three-way cooperation to be furthered through a trilateral leaders' summit. These meetings were last held in late 2019 before being suspended due to deteriorating relations between Tokyo and Seoul, followed by the COVID-19 pandemic. China's foreign minister said despite the pause, all three had managed to deepen cooperation on issues ranging from the signing of a major regional trade deal to managing the pandemic. This reflects that the cooperation between the three countries has a deep foundation, strong demand, huge potential and broad prospects. Wang added that China, Japan and South Korea should play an active role in promoting regional and global development. Japan's foreign minister said she believed the trilateral cooperation greatly contributes to peace and prosperity, even at a time of many unprecedented challenges. Pyongyang's recent military satellite launch and cooperation with Russia was also discussed at the meeting. Park said the three ministers agreed to continue communication to help resolve the current tensions on the peninsula. That was Jack Barton in Busan. For more, we are now joined on the line by Rong Ying, Vice President and Senior Research Fellow at the China Institute of International Studies. So, Dr. Rong, what do you make of the significance of this meeting, especially considering the four-year um, suspension and such high-level discussions among these three countries? Well, I think the uh, foreign minister meeting uh, uh, has played a very important role in not only resetting the uh, momentum, I mean, the, the trilateral three-way cooperation between China, uh, Japan, and the ROK, but pave the ground for uh, the uh, leaders' meeting, which I think the three, three countries all committed to work together for early, at the earliest possible dates. This is, this is, of course, the most significant, most important sort of outcome of the meeting. Having said that, I think uh, the uh, bilateral meetings on the sidelines are also very much important. They not only play the role in uh, preparing the ground, the political ground, and but more importantly, I think, reinforce the commitment of the three countries to trilateral cooperation. And uh, if one have taken notice, the photos that are being appeared, published by the uh, website of the three countries' uh, foreign ministry, it will be interesting to see that uh, all the, I mean, these photos, uh, either the three ministers are shaking hands with beaming smile, or in the case of Chinese foreign ministry website, we will notice that the three ministers are working, I mean, in a almost a synchronized way. I think it's a, it's a great significant symbolism that 
clear they are going to restart, reset the uh, trilateral cooperation, which is so important for the country, for the three countries, but also for the region as well. Yeah, interesting point. And, and Wang Yi highlighted the need to restart negotiations on a China-Japan ROK free trade agreement. How crucial do you believe such an agreement is for regional economic integration? Well, I think the three countries um, take up uh, uh, in uh, like one, I think 25% of the, uh, uh, um, even more of the world total in terms of trade. And the trade volume has risen from something like one one hundred thirty billion and twenty years and more to today to last year two thousand twenty two eight thousand eight hundred billion U.S. dollars. And if you look at that, that is exactly I think the foundation or the imperative for the two. For the three countries, three sides, to strengthen and trade and uh, cooperation, and for the uh, uh, trilateral, but also for uh, East Asia uh, economic cooperation. So this is, I think, uh, uh, very much important. But but having said that, the uh, the free trade agreement of the three countries which I think uh, started quite a long time, unfortunately has not been able to make a uh, breakthrough, even though the three of them are now uh, a major sort of members of RCEP. That's why I think uh, uh, China has pushing very hard, calling upon the three, the other two, uh, Japan and, uh, and uh, South Korea, work together for an early so the conclusion of negotiations. And uh, the last point I, I would make is that between the three countries, they already have an investment uh, agreement. So naturally, well, would accept, would, would hope that we'd expect that trade, free trade agreement would be concluded as soon as possible. Yeah, and, and Wang Yi also emphasized the importance of collaboration in cutting-edge scientific and technological fields like big data, blockchain, and artificial intelligence. How do you foresee these collaborations contributing to, to regional and global development and what potential challenges or opportunities may arise? Yeah, uh, let's first look at the uh, importance of these uh, cooperation, cooperation on technology, on science, and uh, I think, in addition to the traditional issue, I mean, trade, uh, trade, traditional topics, trade and investment, these are the areas, these are the issues that would define. These were, I mean, the level and the quality of cooperation. And I think all these three countries know very well of the importance. Unfortunately, there are some challenges or problems uh, in, 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 the, uh, in, in the way. This is uh, largely because of the uh, the uh, geopolitical uh, issues. Uh, particularly, I think the uh, impact by the uh, over securitization or politicization uh, on these trade and technological development cooperation issues. And in addition, uh, apart from that, there are other factors, external factors. That has always been uh, impacting, uh, I mean, the uh, attitude or the positions of Japan and South Korea, uh, uh, technological and cooperation, uh, digital cooperation with 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 China. Well, so in all, I think from at least from the meeting, uh, I mean, the, the, the conversation that have been had, I uh, there are. More uh, uh, and better understanding of the importance of that. Uh, four years ago, 2019, the three sides published, agreed a 10-year outlook for uh, China for the three-way uh, cooperation and the digital uh, uh, issues, scientific and technological issues are among them. So if these uh, uh, sort of agreements are followed through, we're going to see uh, some progress, I mean, in these areas.
Yeah, and and you mentioned about uh, uh the geopolitical factors, and actually Wang Yi urged the three countries to oppose ideological demarcation and resist putting regional cooperation into camps. How do we understand this? Yeah, that's I think exactly the reasons. Uh, I mean, the factors that has been obstructing or creating problems for the trilateral cooperation along that, as we know that United States plays a very important role, I mean, dominant role in that. And the United States uh, had in the uh, back in August this year, I think they the three bring the, brought the three countries together. And there are many uh, sort of attempts uh, goes along that line by dividing uh, the region uh, into two camps, which is definitely not in the interest uh, uh, the, uh, for the for the cooperation of that. And I think the United, uh, Japan and uh, South Korea understand very well. And for the sake of smooth uh, cooperation, I mean, China, Japan, and uh, South Korea, I think uh, these two countries, despite the fact that they are uh, allies of the United States, they should exercise more, uh, I mean, uh, more you know, independently and exercise uh, some strategic autonomy to understand, I mean, to by taking into account their own interests and the overall peace and stability of the region. Having, dividing the region into uh, two camps based on ideology or geopolitics will not serve the interests. In the end, I think they, were, they, they, they understand the very well, and they should uh, do that. But of course, the United States uh, plays a dominant role in their politics and diplomacy. So we will see how mm. they can balance, how they can pursue their inch better, in a, in a better way, uh, in their interest by uh, exercising more uh, independently and in a, and a strategic uh, uh, autonomy. Okay, and and uh, we have to notice that the summit comes amid heightened tensions in the region, um, especially influenced by North Korea's weapons program and increased U.S. military presence. So, how might trilateral cooperation between uh, China, Japan, and South Korea contribute to easing these tensions? The trilateral cooperation. I think one of the purposes for trilateral cooperation between China, Japan, and South Korea is to pursue peace. Development and the programming uh, prosperity for the region as a whole. So, in this regard, I think uh, in in this, I mean, in the future, uh, other players, I mean, in particular, North Korea should be brought on on board. But at this moment, I think due to the geopolitical uh, factors particularly the United States, uh, I mean, the Indo-Pacific strategy and uh, 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 and it's uh, strengthened the uh, strategic, particular security alliance between uh, United States, Japan, and South Korea, uh, uh, making uh, uh, the, uh, I think, other part, side of the, I mean, North Korea, uh, very much, I think, concerned about its security. So, uh, on this question on peace and stability on the Korean Peninsula, I think there are general understanding. I mean, the the, the issue, the political, issue, the, the uh, Korean Peninsula question has to be resolved through talks, peace and as talks and negotiations. So political settlement solution is that in the process, the legitimate uh, sort of security concern uh, interest should be can be addressed and. Uh, uh, otherwise, we 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 are going to see a kind of again an opposing camps and uh, rising tensions. That's exactly what we're having now. Mm -hmm. China China has made it very clear whether I to concede these differences without political means. And in the meantime, I think the party is concerned they should have exercised constraints. And more importantly, I think pursue a political settlement solution to their differences. This is, I think, uh, uh, the right way, and this is there's no other sort of option. There's no other way that can resolve their differences. It is all hope that as now the momentum, I mean, is there. The atmosphere has changed in China and, the, and Japan and South Korea 
the child that took open will continue, will play a role in bringing, I think, uh, the, the, all the parties together in the hope that uh, their differences will be resolved in a, in a, in a peaceful and a political way. Thank you, Rowing, Vice President and Senior Research Fellow at the China Institute of International Studies. China has unveiled 25 measures to support the private economy. The People's Bank of China and seven other central government departments issued the notice. They promised to increase loans for private enterprises and proactively tailor financial services to the needs of the industrial and supply chains. They also vowed to ensure continuous funding services for private enterprises, warning against bluntly stopping, suppressing, withdrawing or cutting off loans. The document also said private businesses encountering difficulties but with competitive products, projects or technologies would be provided with more advanced funding. For more, we are now joined by Professor Chu Chen, Assistant Director of International Monetary Institute at Renmin University of China. Professor Chu, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So how significant do you consider these 25 measures, um, especially in light of the challenges currently faced by private enterprises in China? Well, I think uh, the whole world has experienced a similar situation in the past three years. Uh, if you remember, after 2020 um, in America and in our European Union uh, due to the COVID. So I think the market has been shrinked. The demand has been shrinked. And uh, most of the uh, private sector, especially the SMEs, has encountered lots of challenges. So at that moment, uh, America and the European Union tried to provide the relief package for the private sectors and uh, by signing the check check to them. But in China, we've done it uh, in a different phase of the time and with more cautious uh, measures. Uh, because uh, when America are doing that, uh, the pandemic still on going on. But China right now, the pandemic's been over for like a year. And also, they've been doing that in a very emergent, uh, uh, emergent situation. But in China, we have already seen what's going on in America and the European Union, for example, after they've been doing that to save the private sector, they've seen high inflation happening. So China right now has been providing this uh, 25 measures. On one hand, yes, we've been directly trying to help the private sector. But on the other hand, uh, we try to do it in a very cautious way. So I think this is the essence for these 25 measures. Yeah, we know that private firms contribute significantly to China's GDP and urban jobs. Um, so in your view, how crucial is the role of the private sector in driving the overall economic recovery? Well, I think after 40 years of the reform and opening up, everybody will understand the importance of the private sector. Um, we're looking at the 60% of our GDP, 70% of our jobs, and 80% of the R&D investment all coming from the private sectors. And we've been seeing many uh, famous brands like the BYD and also Huawei. And they've been creating many good things, not only for China, but for the rest of the world. So uh, if uh, they've been facing a lot of the difficulties right now, I think it's the duty and the responsibility for the government to provide them help. And I think more importantly, rather than just the giants of the private sector, the SMEs, um, you know, the papa mama shop, small restaurants, hotels, and, you know, little factories. They are actually the pillar providing jobs and incomes for the ordinary people. So I think it's more important to help them to keep on operate, uh, operating and, and to, to develop in a sustainable way so the whole economy can actually functioning in a rather healthy manner, and then the whole economy will, you know, survive this business cycle and look into a better future. Yeah, and, and the document emphasizes support for privately owned property enterprises amid um, challenges in, in the property sector. So how might these measures alleviate concerns about a broader financial crisis, especially considering the property sector's um, substantial contributions to China's economic activity? Well, actually, I think for uh, the private property uh, developers and the companies, I think this 24 measures made it very clear no matter who you are, as long as you meet a certain standards threshold and the financial support will be provided to you, uh, same as well. I think this is a very smart move because, um, you know, they actually, you know, the property industry actually represented a very important part of our GDP. And not only developing the houses, but also they've been linking the upstream and downstreams, like the construction, like the raw materials, like the decorations, like the house appliances and et cetera. And I think this is not only happening in China. Well, if you take a look at the uh, 
experience in America and in European Union, you, you know, the developed nation, you will find out even though their financial market and their industry are already, you know, very mature, but still uh, their housing market are still very important pillar of their economy as well. So nobody can deny the importance of the industry, no matter you're a private uh, player or the public player in this industry, as long as you are doing a fine job or doing a healthy business in here, uh, when the business cycle is going down, I think the government should help them out and the talk through the cycle and welcome the uh, another cycle when it goes up. Yeah, and, and when addressing the financial challenges of private enterprises, how do you think the government can strike a balance between ensuring short-term stability, especially for companies facing temporary uh, difficulties, and fostering the long-term sustainability and growth of the private sector? Well, that answer can be very complicated because different companies have their own cycle and um, they will have their own strategy. But I think from the government side, I think it's try to build a more com- complicated and sophisticated system and a more matured system to help them to get a finance. Well, because the enterprises themselves, uh, more than anyone else, will understand who they are and how they do businesses. The only thing is that when they are facing the difficulties, can they get the resources to support themselves to top through the cycle or not? So I think in the past, China financial market are featuring most of the indirect financing, banking loans, for example. When you are lacking of the money, when you are facing difficulties, you need to borrow money to top through the cycle. In China, most of the experience is you go to the banks and ask for a loan. This is, well, like in America, they probably have the similar experience like 50 years ago. Go to the banker and ask for a loan to tough through the cycle. But right now, most of the developed nations, they are more used, uh, you know, the direct financing, which is a bond and a stock market for the financing. Uh, banking is actually, well, very stable, very cautious, but it's low efficient and costly. So in the developed nations, their bond market and stock market is very very uh, mature. So in China, I think this time, the 25 measures mentioned very clearly, we need to develop the direct financing to support the private sectors. Maybe they can use their loan, uh, they can use their, uh, you know, their bond, they can use their stock and, uh, you know, the equities as a collateral to borrow money directly from the borrower and lenders. So that will be more efficient and to support this uh, private sector, especially the small and medium-sized enterprises that develop in a healthy way in the long run. Yeah, and the document also supports private enterprises in going public overseas. How important is this support for the uh, internationalization of Chinese private firms, and what challenges might they encounter in, in this process? Well, I think this is a very uh, important measure, because when America and when Japanese enterprises go into bigger, they also have the similar uh, paths of development. For example, they get listed in Europe, they get listed in North America, or get listed in, in other you know, uh, equity market. So utilizing the globalized financial resources is actually a very effective way to help the smaller players to get into a bigger one. Uh, but I think this is a good idea, and using the stock as a financial channel is, is you know, very effective. But also, you need to know in a different financial market, it will have different regulations. For example, when Chinese enterprises want to, to get listed in America, you need to meet the SEC's regulation. They probably have a different uh, you know, standard. They probably will have different rules. And when you go to the Berlin, when you go to the Frankfurt, go to the London, they also have different rules and standards. Sometimes if you don't understand how they do uh, you know, the thing and how they do the businesses, you probably will touch some, you know, bottom line and red line. Uh, we have seen this situation before. Uh, some Chinese enterprises, they see Frankfurt, you know, the Borsch uh, in Germany, probably have a lower requirement or threshold for the getting public. So they go there, but they find out they actually will have a lower bar in a financing amount, but, or the requirement for the asset, but they have very high standard for the information disclosure. And they failed that standard and then get punished. So that kind of the tricky part will probably happen to many players if they want to get listed overseas. So you need to be very cautious. You need the international standard. You need to reach out and learn from the expertise of our experts. Mm-hmm. But this is very important. Yes. Thank you, Professor Chu Chang, Assistant Director of the International Monetary Institute at Renmin University of China. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. 
This is World Today. I'm Zhao Yang. China will add six countries to its visa-free list for visits of up to 15 days. This applies to ordinary passport holders from France, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, Spain, and Malaysia. They will no longer need visas if they are visiting for business, tourism, family reunion, and transit. The Chinese Foreign Ministry says it aims to make travel more convenient, promote openness, and serve the country's high-quality development goals. For more, we are now joined on the line by Dr. Wang Huiyao, President of the Center for China and Globalization, a think tank based in Beijing. So, Dr. Wang, how significant is China's decision to trial、uh, visa-free travel for citizens from these countries, and how might this policy、um, influence bilateral relations between China and、uh, the countries involved? Well, thank you. <clears throat> yes, I, I think this is、uh, actually very significant, and it's the first time. That China actually,、uh, uh, you know, unilaterally opened、uh, its、uh, visa process、uh, to the countries that,、uh, you know, selectively. Of course, there's a, a, a there's a group of、uh, of countries, but I think they 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 did that for Singapore before. But now they are expanding that to six countries, and also they had the Hainan Island、uh, open. So this is throughout China. I, I think it's very significant after the COVID, after China opened up. As you mentioned, it's a it's a new measure to show to the world that China is、uh, is really open, and China now uh, can uh, abandon this so-called reciprocal、uh, requirement. And even you know other countries do not give China visa free. China is willing to give visa free to those countries that、uh, China has a, a lot of business with. So so I think this is a, a new beginning, and、uh, it probably w- will not stop there. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm hoping that there will be more countries、uh, enjoying a similar benefit, and China would be really the best way to know China is to come to China, and the best way to to come to China is to get rid of those、uh, visa barriers, and、uh, that's really a great move. I mean,、uh, a breakthrough, I would say,、uh, that in the China、uh, global relations, and this will really be very、uh, important for other countries. Uh, to follow, probably、uh, more country will be open in the future. Yeah,、uh, the Chinese Foreign Ministry mentioned、uh, facilitating personnel exchanges and serving high-quality development and high-level opening up.、Uh, in your view, what specific objectives might China have in mind with this visa-free trial? Well, I think China, after COVID,、uh, now realized that、uh, <clears throat> everything is, is functions so well here. You know, like the. The fast train network is great. You have so many five-star hotels. You have great tourist facilities. You have five G networks throughout China, and everywhere is so. A lot of the tourist sites have been rebuilt, but then there's a lack of global tourists and visitors. So, so that's why China suddenly realized that it doesn't make sense for us to have such fabulous facilities without international visitors. Also, I think that we now have resumed a lot of flights. Uh, internationally, so a lot of flights need to have more、uh, passengers too.、Uh, but also,、uh, I think most、uh, importantly, this is going to send enormous goodwill to the world, and then this is going to be an enormous people-to-people、uh, people diplomacy, and also people. This is going to、uh, demystify, you know, all those、uh, mistrust and, and misunderstanding on China、uh, that so many other countries may have. So by inviting them. Visa free to come. They can see with their own eyes and seeing, believing, and then they can see that how you know、uh, China is so vibrant and, and so vigorous, and、uh, so that really this is probably the best uh, uh, storytelling of China. It's the open door, a real open door. This I would call is a real open door. So there's many things of that, but also of course China wants to recycle with the big, uh, uh, you know,、uh, with the world, do do circulating strategy. How to circulate in the world? You need the people first. You need talent first. You need the visitor first, and this is the way to do that. So, so I think this really in corresponding with the、uh, President Xi that China needs to open wider, and this is really a concrete, uh, uh, a specific move to do that. And this has really got welcomed by French Foreign Minister, German Ambassador, by everybody. You know, so this has sent a huge good signal that China can voluntarily open up even more, and and this is very welcome. By all the people who have come into China, and new people attract them coming to China. This is a great way to do that. Yeah, and, and what considerations might have influenced the selection of these specific countries? I mean, why these five European countries plus Malaysia? 
Well, I think uh, those, uh, uh, you know, five European countries, are, are, are five uh, top countries of EU countries, very important. And, uh, and so those are the five largest countries of, of EU uh, bloc. And they have, traditionally have a very heavy investment in China, good business with China. They had a good relation. And at their top level has visited China. You know, I mean, their foreign minister was in town when China announced it. So you see that there is a good relation. So China knows how to uh, really uh, further promoting the good relation and by voluntarily doing more. And, uh, and also Malaysia is the same. You know, uh, China has, uh, has good relation and joined uh, with one of the best countries in ASEAN countries. So those shows a good example that China wants to maintain good relations, and if you have a good relation, China wants to do more. And so this shows the incentive for all countries, and China wants to get along with every country in the world, uh, including U.S., uh, including EU, U.K., uh, Australia, Canada, you know, all those countries. And I think, you know, they select those few countries because uh, they are already in good relations, they are already in good momentum. And, and also, we're having the uh, China-EU summit uh, coming up next early December. So those five uh, countries are the most important EU countries. So I think there's many, many elements. Of course, the economic relations, trade, uh, you know, uh, also the culture bound. China and France has, uh, uh, you know, established diplomatic ties for 60 years. They're going to be a culture, a tourism year uh, for both countries. So, so I think there's many elements into that. China-German has, has an excellent relation. I was just speaking at the German parliament about, the, you know, 10 days ago. So I think there's a lot of good things uh, that, that is momentarily happening on, on both sides. And those countries are really probably pioneer for this first group of enjoying such a good benefit. I'm sure there will be more to come. Mm-hmm. Well, we know that Malaysia has said it will eliminate visa requirements for Chi- Chinese tourists starting from December the 1st. So can we expect similar policies from the other five countries? Yeah, I think probably there, there's a little challenge there, but I know that uh, us, uh, Malaysia is really great. We uh, grant them 15 days of uh, visa-free travel. They grant Chinese citizens 30 days of visa-free travel. So they even doubled the benefit for the Chinese. Uh, but I think for that, the other five countries, I mean, the, the France has announced that they're going to have a more uh, relaxed policy for the Chinese students uh, who have studied in France as a master's degree now and can stand there, stay there for, for, for longer. I'm sure, you know, uh, you know, we, we need a, we need a liberalization uh, in this deglobalization era of the of the talent flow, of the people flow, and particularly China is so well developed, and we need a global talent, global visitor, and the global tourists, global student as well. So I think those uh, those uh, the, you know they, they they may not be reciprocal, but I don't think it has to be reciprocal. Mm-hmm. I remember many years ago when I was a student, every time I have to travel back through Japan because the, the airline wasn't directly flighting. And Japan offers you visa free to transfer, which they gain a lot of benefit. You have to buy Japan Airlines. You know, things like that is good for your economy. It's a practical, uh, uh, you know, sense to, to do those things. We don't have to just stick to this, uh, uh, you know, reciprocal, or if you don't do it, I don't do it. Somebody has to do it first. So, so, so I think, you know, it's great. Like, uh, like Hong Kong, uh, uh, Chinese uh, citizens in Hong Kong, they got the possible traveling to over 100 countries visa free, you know. I hope that someday, uh, you know, there will be more uh, uh, countries will allow mainland citizens to do that. And I think, you know, but by doing so, China do it first. It's really a good start. I'm, I'm sure there will be more countries who will give Chinese, Chinese citizens a visa-free access. Like I, I was just in the uh, Middle East, in, 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 you know, in the United Arab. You know, it's visa-free, and I'm going to Doha uh, later this, uh, next month. It's visa-free. So... Many countries starting doing that, but I hope that European com- countries will probably do that uh, quite soon if we mm-hmm. had a good, uh, you know, this uh, kind of arrangement. Okay, thank you, Dr. Wang Huiyao, President of the Center for China and Globalization, a think tank based in Beijing. China's National Health Commission has addressed the recent surge in respiratory illnesses. It's feared the winter cold could make the situation more severe, but health officials are providing guidance, Wang Mengjie reports. Since mid-October, China has seen an uptick in seasonal respiratory diseases, especially among children. Pediatric hospitals are grappling with a record number of patients, prompting the Health Commission to issue guidelines for managing the surge. The Commission has directed localities to implement stratified care, enhancing the capabilities of grassroots facilities. Mild cases in children are encouraged to seek treatment at community clinics or under pediatricians at general hospitals. 
An expert highlights the vulnerability of elderly people to respiratory illnesses in winter, saying the reason is usually underlying disease. Vaccinations are the most important measure for the elderly against respiratory diseases. The elderly also need to pay more attention to temperature variations and humidity changes at home. To beef up containment measures for the possible cases in the coming month, health officials stress to use different sources of data as a part of the efforts to strengthen monitoring of and early warning against the contagious diseases. While personal protection measures should be reinforced, and vaccination campaigns targeting the elderly, people with pre-existing diseases, and children should be intensified. That is Wang Mengjie reporting, and for more, we are now joined by Wu Zhiwei, director of the Center for Public Health Research at Nanjing University. Doctor Wu, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. Um, so, can you first provide an overview of the current surge in respiratory illnesses in China? Like, what factors are contributing to this increase, and how widespread is the impact? Oh well, as the winter sets in, actually, you have seen uh, uh, tremendous cases actually coming into hospitals, the ch- particularly the children infections by uh, mycoplasma, pneumonia, and also flu and RSV. Uh, clearly, this is uh, something actually we haven't really seen in the past three years. I think there are a number of reasons accounting for the increase of the infections, particularly in the. Uh, COVID-19 period for the past three years, people wearing their masks and they avoiding uh, getting into the public areas, and also in terms of you know uh, uh, quarantine and other public health measures, people uh, did not exposed to those viruses. And that actually probably would contribute to the to the decrease of the immunity against those viral infections. So once we open up societies. And I think that people are becoming more susceptible to the infections.、Um, I think that this probably is the major reason. The other thing, the other reason could be that as we open up the societies, and the people are actually traveling、uh, much more as, as they do, and apparently that people going to places and increasing their contact. So this is uh, uh, likely to be another factor contributing to the surge. Of the new uh, uh, respiratory infections.、Uh, so, are there、uh, similar patterns of increased respiratory infections reported in other parts of the world, or is the surge unique to China? I don't think it's、uh, unique to China. If you look at the the North America, the Europe, actually, the respiratory infections are also on the rise. But whether it's a、uh, uh, particular high、uh, in comparison. Comparison to the past years, it's not very clear right now, and I don't have the public health data uh, uh, basically suggesting whether this is a particular case or this is a general trend in,、uh, which we, we have seen in the past、uh, few years. But apparently, that is,、uh, I think, more likely is a, is a global trend. As winter sets in, usually、uh, we see a lot more respiratory infections. Okay, so according to China's health、uh, authorities,、uh, the respiratory illnesses are caused by various pathogens.、Uh, so, how challenging is it to address multiple pathogens simultaneously? And are there specific measures being taken to combat each of them effectively? Well,、uh, this is uh, definitely a, a big challenge for the public health. Health authority and also for individuals as well, and also for the、uh, hospitals as well. Because uh, right now, uh, in the clinic,、uh, we have identified flu, RSV,、uh, mycoplasma, pneumonia, and in in some cases, COVID-19 infections as well. So many of those、uh, illnesses basically present themselves as a, a high fever. And also,、uh, you know, drowsiness.、Uh, there are different、uh, symptoms which are very similar. So, unless you use uh, uh, medical medical diagnostic methods, it's very hard to distinguish. So, this is uh, uh, very challenging for the hospital、uh, to deal with it. I think the critical thing is that、uh, once you're getting sick, and if you if you develop some severe Symptoms you need to go to hospital. Otherwise,、uh, it's better to stay at home because、uh, basically, by doing this, you could avoid the cross、uh, infection. 
Okay, but how well prepared is China to meet the heightened demand for healthcare services prompted by this surge in respiratory illnesses? Well, I think overall, based on、uh, what I, I'm aware, the hospitals are pretty well prepared for the、uh, surge of the infections.、Uh, but a few days ago, I was visiting a children's hospital in Nanjing, and apparently, you saw a lot of、uh, children actually coming into the clinic and they they take medical、uh, treatment. But、uh, overall, you see very clearly the the hospitals are very well prepared. And I think you know、um, uh, they increase the the medical staff to deal with the situation, and the medical stocks, the various equipment, and also medicines are very well、uh, stocked up for、uh, for dealing with the situation.、Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't、um, it, it, it rule out in the future that if there is a huge surge in terms of cases, we still need to do a much better preparation for the.、Uh, Once the winter is setting, yeah. And very briefly, what preventative measures do you recommend for the general population to reduce the risk of、uh, respiratory infections? I think for the respiratory infections, you know, you have to use a common sense, such as wearing your face mask and wash your hands very frequently, and also you know、um, avoid uh, going into public areas with a lot of people gathering. And those are the、um, things which we learn. The COVID-19 period that could very、uh, effectively prevent infections. The other thing is that if you just develop a very mild、uh, symptoms, I would avoid going into hospitals because that would likely、uh, contract across、uh, mm-hmm. infections. I would simply stay at home, have good rest, drinking a lot of food.、Um, you know,、uh, usually for the upper respiratory tract infections, they will. It will go away within one to two weeks. Okay, thank you, Wu Jiwei, director of the Center for Public Health Research at Nanjing University. This is World Today. Stay with us. This is CGTN Radio. Hear the difference. This is World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Germany's GDP shrank by 0.1 percent in the third quarter compared with the second quarter of the year. Despite inflation falling sharply in recent months to 3.8 percent in October from 6.1 percent in August and over 10 percent last year, price rises continue to be a burden for German consumers. Consumer spending, which makes up around two thirds of German GDP, fell 0.3 percent in the third quarter. German exports fell by 0.8 percent, while imports dropped even more sharply by 1.3 percent. In the first two quarters, economic output stagnated, with the first quarter showing zero growth and the second quarter showing 0.1 percent growth. For more on this, my colleague Zhao Yang spoke with Yan Liang, professor of economics at Willamette University. So Yan, Germany's GDP shrank by 0.1 percent in the third quarter compared with quarter two. So if the output shrinks in the last quarter two, the economy will officially have entered a technical recession. So does it mean that Germany now has one foot in recession? Or what do you think are the main problems or challenges for Germany's economy now? Right, I do think that German German's economy is in、um, you know technical or getting into that technical recession. So you're right,、um, you know they grew by zero percent in the first quarter of、um, this year, and then point one percent in the second quarter, and then the third quarter the growth became negative. Point one percent, as you mentioned, and looking at Q Q four,、um, I think you know many of the analysts are not optimistic.、Um, for one, is when you look at some of the early indicators like the the purchasing manager、uh, index,、um, it has been below fifty for five months straight.、Um, so that's an indication of you know the industrial sector is not looking optimistic, and it's probably not going to expand. Um, and plus, I think there are some headwinds in terms of their fiscal、uh, ruling, their fiscal rule,、uh, 
Um, so all of this, I think, would add to that recessionary pressure. So it's likely if Germany enters a negative growth again in the last quarter, that would be two consecutive quarters. And so that would be the definition of uh, recession. And take a look at the latest economic figures. In quarter three, consumer spending was down 0.3%, export down 0.8%, and imports down 1.3%. So what are the main reasons for it? And the inflation falling sharply in recent months, but uh, why the economy is still so stagnant? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think there are a lot of um, negative forces in the making. So for one, as we know, you know, with the Russian-Ukraine war, with pandemic and deglobalization, and also uh, with this relatively slowdown in the Chinese economy, you know, German sort of export-like growth um, has been, you know, sluggish. And when you look at, for example, the unemployment number, it climbed up to 5.8% in October, which is the highest since June 2021. Mm. So it's not surprising, you know, when people's jobs are at risk, they're going to tighten their purse string. So that's why you're seeing consumers are not spending as much as they did in the past. Um, And as we also mentioned, the PMI reading um, has been negative or has been in the contractionary uh, zone. So I think all this you know, point to the sluggish economy, the lack of demand. Um, and now with the fiscal blow, um, I think that is going to uh, put German in a very um, disadvantaged position. I think that coupled with the longer term trend, for example, the still lag of innovation, digitization in its economy, the lag of, you know, uh, skilled workers um, due to various reasons. Um, so I think all this would be, you know, both in the short term, slow down the economy, but also in the long term is going to undercut Germans uh, economic prospect unless and until uh, policies are enacted to fight, you know, uh, um, countermeasures. Mm. And you mentioned the unemployment rate climbed to 5.8%, which is quite high in October, and around 2.6 million people are unemployed in Germany. But at the same time, many companies say they are still suffering from labor shortages. So why is this happening? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, this is not just a German uh, phenomenon. I think in many countries, on the one hand, you see unemployment, but on the other hand, um, you know, companies are still looking for skilled workers. So I think there are a couple of reasons, but the most important one, I think, is really the skill match, uh, the mismatch of, of skills. So on the one hand, you know, German, uh, German um, you know, students, like many other countries, students are trying to get more education. They go to college, um, they get all these um, degrees um, from universities, but at the same time, companies they're really trying to hire practical, you know, professionals that has the, you know, sort of job specific skills. And so there is a mismatch in in this kinds of, you know, the students that university system produces versus what the companies want, you know, with the skills and experiences and the sort of um, work calibrates um, that these companies are looking for. So this is, you know, not just German struggle, but definitely I think Germans problem is very pronounced. Um, They're looking for young people and skilled workers. So you're right, in, in German's economy, um, they are lacking, you know, these skilled professionals in one sixth of their professions. Um, and they were needing, you know, at least 400,000 uh, workers every uh, year. Uh, and they were hoping to get more uh, working mig- uh, immigrants. Um, but there are a lot of, you know, I think barriers for them to be able to get that. So this is, you know, I think a long-term problem that, you know, it requires educational system reform. It also requires, you know, immigration policy reform, um, and 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 so on and so forth. Mm. And German Economy Minister Robert Habeck, he said one of the ways he want to, you know, tackle the ailing state of the affairs in Germany is to cut through the red tape. So, do you think this can really help the economy? Well, I think there are a couple, um, you know, again, barriers. I mean, on the one hand, yes, Germany would need to attract more young, skilled uh, working immigrants from other countries. But on the other hand, I think, you know, for one, this is kind of bigger than bigger, a neighbor, right? If you attract all the other young people from other countries, then that would leave a hole in those other countries. But two, I think it's also important 
that you know people go to Germany to look for jobs, to look for better economic prospect. But with Germans working, you know, um, first of all, you know, uh, many of the companies are not expanding in Germany. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, according to a recent survey by the Chambers of Commerce, 32% of the companies say they wanted to expand their business overseas, outside of Germany. And that's much higher, double um, the percentage that were recorded the year before. So it's un it's unsure um, how many high paid jobs and, and you know, good uh, good jobs will be created in Germany for one. And for two, as we all know, you know, Germans economy, especially their wage has been stagnating over the years. Mm. So again, it's not clear, it's very attractive for these young skilled immigrants to come to Germany and, and look for jobs here. Um, and last but not the least, I also think that, you know, a lot of the um, um, sort of investments, right, need to be done, especially on you know, greening the economy, transitioning the economy um, to be more en uh, energy efficient, to be more green energy. And so it re requires a lot of government uh, investment in infrastructure to make that happen, to uh, to enable private enterprises to invest more. But now Germany is taking a step back. So mm. all of these, I think, would undermine the attractiveness of Germany's Germans economy mm. um, and you know entice young people to immigrate. And Germany was once seen as Europe's economic powerhouse, but now the economy is stagnating. So tell us more about the country's economic or industrial structure. It is actually good at some traditional industries like auto industry, they have BMW, they have uh, uh, Benz, but uh, what about the new industries like digital economy, chips, artificial intelligence, etc.? Right, I think that's a great question. So um, we can first talk about, you know, the reality right now in Germany, and then maybe think about, you know, what are the fundamental causes of its lack of innovations and so on. So when we look at, for example, the Digital Economy and Society Index, which is basically a measure um, that looks into digital performance and progress in EU countries, Germany it's actually lagging behind the EU average on average. Um, on three out of the four key indicators. Um, for example, the digital technology integration, right? On this indicator, which is very important, um, it is lagging behind. And it's really lagging behind also some of the very basic infrastructure. For example, at the end of 2020, only about 20% of the households outside of the larger urban centers had the access to the top quality internet connections. And so many of the small and medium-sized businesses, um, they're also located outside of the major urban centers, are also suffering from the lack of access to internet access. Mm. So I think just one example here is that Germany has been behind um, in digital digitalized its economy. Um, and there are many reasons for that. Um, so some people would blame on, you know, the bureaucratic structure of, of the companies. Some people would blame on, you know, the so-called path de dependency. So especially like what you mentioned, uh, when German when Germany was was leading, you know, in the uh, automobile production, then it slows down them in 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 their progress in moving towards EV, for example. So this is sort of they're the victim of their own, you know, past success. That's all we have for this edition of World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Thanks for listening. See you next time.